0: You are a great God. Even the words we sang fall so short of the essence of who you are. But we thank you for calling us all here and for giving us the privilege of worshiping you, of bringing you glory through our words. Lord, as we continue our series on prayer, teach us to pray. be glorified in this sermon amen take a seat get your bibles out turn to isaiah chapter 46 real quick and as soon as you get there raise your hand let's see who gets there first isaiah 46. all right in the back stand up rodney the man Read it out loud, verses nine and ten, would you? So remember the former thing is old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end seems to end with the ancient times a famous and yet not done, not yet done. Saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my workers. Thank you. Isaiah 46, 9, and 10, that, those two verses are talking about the uniqueness of God. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Okay? So God is utterly unique. Now, we know that there are no other gods in this world, but they thought that back then. They still think that today, but they there. There's only one God. Now, how is God unique? He declares the end... From the beginning, and from ancient times, to things not yet done. In other words, He knows the future. Everything is moving towards its destined end. Okay, you with me so far? That's who God is. That's what make. It's one of the things that makes Him unique. Now, turn to Daniel chapter seven. Daniel chapter seven. This is a great chapter, because it, it's it's full of, of so much. One thing that we will not talk about this morning really, but is if one of the ways that God speaks is through dreams and visions. And this is a great manual on how to interpret dreams and visions because it is the dream is given and then it is explained, and you see how God uses certain symbols. And you see what Daniel did, how he recorded it, and so on, and he's able to recall it. But in the seventh chapter of Daniel, God gives Daniel a vision of four beasts. And these four beasts represent four future kingdoms. We know that. That's not my opinion. It is stated in the text in Daniel 7. Okay? The third kingdom is described in verse 6. It says, after this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now we know that the first beast was the kingdom of Babylon. That lasted very shortly, 70 years. That was followed by the Medo-Persian Empire. You can read in the book of Daniel how the, the Medes and the Persians overtook the Babylonian Empire. Do you remember the invisible hand writing on the wall? That very night, not Nebuchadnezzar, but his son, lost the kingdom. Through a series of water aqueducts underneath, the Medes and Persians invaded Babylon and overtook it. And I believe it was the, the, the Medes that were overcome by the Persians, and the Persian Empire was then conquered by this third empire. And of course, Which empire, history tells us, followed the Medo-Persian Empire? The Greek Empire, okay? Now, there's something that's unique about Daniel chapter 7, verse 6. This empire is like a leopard that has four wings. And what history tells us is that the known world at that time was conquered very, very quickly by the Greek Empire, namely by one man. And that, of course, is who? Alexander the Great, okay? Okay? The historian Josephus records Alexander's triumphal entry into Jerusalem for the first time. I'm gonna read to you what he wrote. And Josephus in his writings called The Antiquities of the Jews is the most reliable ancient history Jewish historian that there ever was. There'll never be anyone else because this time has passed. This is what he wrote. Now keep in mind Daniel 7 verse 6, okay, and this, the dream that Daniel had and how it played out. This is what he wrote. Alexander, when he had taken Gaza, made haste to go up to Jerusalem, and Jadoah, the high priest, when he heard that was in an agony not knowing how he should meet the Macedonians since the king was displeased at his foregoing disobedience. Alexander, when he saw the multitude at a distance, between the Jews, in white garments, while the priest stood clothed, clothed with fine linen and the high priest in purple and scarlet clothing with his miter on his head, having the golden plate whereupon the name of God was engraved, approached by himself and adored that name, Alexander, and first saluted the high priest. Interesting. So here comes this world conqueror, and he sees this high priest, and he salutes him. Now watch this. The Jews also did all together with one voice, salute Alexander. Why would they do that? Well, here's why. And when the book of Daniel was shown him, meaning Alexander by the priest, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, which verse was that? Daniel chapter 7, verse 6, right? Did I just have you guys read that one? After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings. You see that? In other words, they knew what was coming. That's the point. Okay? They knew what was coming. And so he, he, he presents this to Alexander. And he says, the priest supposed that himself was the person intended, and as he was then glad, he dismissed the multitude for the present. But the next day he called them to him and bade them to ask what favors they pleased him. In other words, they acknowledged him as this third beast, this third world ruler. They didn't oppose him. They embraced him. If they didn't do that, they would have either been made forced to submit, or they would have been slaughtered. But in this case, because they knew the future, they welcomed him, okay? And after this, his worldwide conquest, Alexander wept, history tells us, because there was what? No more worlds to conquer, he died after a short life of debauchery at the age of 32. And by the way, it says, the, uh, and the beast had four heads. See that in verse uh, 6 again of Daniel 7? When he died, four generals rose up and led the Greek Empire. Until that, of course, was conquered by which empire? The Roman Empire. Now, after that fourth empire, the Roman Empire, Daniel describes a fifth kingdom that is to come. Let's look at that in verses 13 and 14 of Daniel chapter 7. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. In his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Obviously, who is this one like a son of man? In the an ancient of days, it would be the who? The father. So the father is giving an everlasting kingdom to his son. Okay? Now, it is to this kingdom that we pray this prayer. Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Now, we've talked about our Father in heaven. That we called it the paternity of prayer. Paternity being the Greek word pater, which means father. Hallowed be your name. That's what we call the, the priority or the prominence in prayer. That's what we hallow or regard as holy and and revere the very name of God who he is. We do it by our words and our prayers, by putting God first, but also by how we live our lives. Holy, separate, under the Lord. In other words, I've been teaching us, and it's been a good reminder to me as well, that my needs, my desires, my wants, (laughs) we haven't even gotten to that part in the prayer yet. I'm making a shift from operating out of a foundation of self and this is hard to a foundation of God. He's first in my prayers. And this is really hard for some of you. I know we've talked because this is new to you. And we are so self absorbed. We've even changed the word soul to what word? Self. Okay? Think about it. Bless the Lord, O oh myself, and all this within me. No, 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 it's not that, it's the soul. But we are so focused on self. And this is why we, we said this, we talked about this before, even on, on Wednesday night, John MacArthur's statement, that the death of self is really the beginning of true prayer. I'm going to put my needs, my desires, however urgent they may be, secondary to howling in the name of God, to the coming of his kingdom, that his will be done on earth as in heaven, Then and only then, when God is in the right place, and I'm in the right place, I bring to him my needs and my desires. This is why, again, John, the the Apostle John wrote, whatever you ask in my name, this is an amazing statement, again, this I will do. Now think about that for a moment. Whatever you ask, that's whatever. That's pretty broad, isn't it? in the name of Jesus, whatever you ask in my name, says this I will do. Well, why would he say that? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. In other words, we pray so that God answers our prayers and then who gets glorified? God does. And God is about being glorified. He won't share his glory with another. And so we are glorifying God when we put him in the right place at the very beginning of our prayers. You eventually should get to the point when you're praying that it's your, your, your time is of worship of him, of praising him, of hallowing him, of, of, and, and very little of your time is what you want. Now, does he know what you need? Then why keep reminding him, right? Worship him, praise him. You bring it up occasionally, but it's, it's an opportunity to glorify him. He will provide for you. In fact, he's already provided for you in ways that you didn't know of. And you recognize that when you see him providing, yeah, I didn't realize that. Well, God knows, and he's going to take care of you. Okay? And so we say that prayer is the occasion for God to demonstrate his glory. We pray so that God may be glorified. That is the motivation to pray. I'm praying so that God may be glorified. I mean, you see it here every Sunday morning. What do I say? Father, may not be me, but may you be glorified in this message, because it's not about me. So as we continue our series on prayer, we come to these three very powerful words that I think when you, hopefully when you understand them or reminded again of them, it should radically change the way you pray. And it's these words, your kingdom come. So let's begin by defining the kingdom of God? Because that's a question that we have to understand. What is the kingdom of God? Just so you know, that the phrase, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is used more than any other phrase by Jesus. So, in other words, if you're a teacher and you are speaking and you have a point you want to get across, and so you keep repeating the same phrase or the same idea over and over and over and over again, I've learned as a student that I better write that down. He's talking about this a lot. It's probably going to come up on an exam. Okay? So it's very important. So now, if that phrase, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, is the one phrase that is used the most by our Lord, you need to know about the kingdom. Right? From the very beginning, Of his ministry, Jesus' message was about the kingdom of God. Just listen to this in Matthew 4, 17. The very first time, he's just had the spirit, he's been tempted, okay? And he then launches his ministry, this is what he says. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's all about the kingdom. And it's all about the kingdom for Jesus, why? Well, because when the kingdom comes in its fullness, who gets the glory? The Father. You see that? Now, the reason why he was sent from the Father, what was the reason? I'll give you an idea here it has a K in it, and a G, and a D, and a M, and it's the kingdom. He preaches the kingdom. Luke four forty two and 44, listen to this. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. So it's his life is all centered on the kingdom of God. Jesus spent all his years with his disciples, teaching them the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. When he died and rose again, how many days did he walk this planet before he ascended heaven? Anyone know? Forty days. Okay. What did he talk about? Well, the book's, book of Acts tells us, Acts 1-3. Then he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of god it's all about the kingdom so again the message was the kingdom the kingdom the kingdom so what is the kingdom well the kingdom really you know, the greek word basilia it means rule or reign now that is different from our understanding of a kingdom because when we think of a kingdom We typically think of a castle with walls or some sort of building or or in a collection of people and so on. In fact, that was Pilate's understanding when he questioned Jesus about his kingdom. He said, are you the king of the Jews? And what did Jesus answer? My kingdom is not of this world. So rather the kingdom is the rule of Christ and his reign and rule is the climax of human history. When he comes again, he is not coming to die like the first time. When he comes again, he is coming to rule. Okay? So all of human history culminates in the sovereign reign of Jesus Christ as king. Okay? Now we typically think of him as our our savior, and that is how most people think of Jesus. Or he's a prophet. There are very few, but there's some today that think of him as also their Lord. That is an indictment on the church, by the way. Because he can't be your savior and not your Lord. It didn't work that way. He is your savior and your Lord. We don't think of him as a king, I mean, we don't, I mean, when I think of a king or a queen, of course, who do I think of? England, right? And they're just, it's more of a tradition more than anything else. But in the presence of a king, I mean, you bow. You speak a certain way. There's a, a, a it's the closest thing we have, it would be the president of the United States. And of course, that name has been now just totally destroyed, but through politics, but there was a certain, because of the position that you would treat that person a certain way. So the king is coming. He is a king. And all of history culminates in the coming of a king. And as you'll see, nothing else, and this is a big transition, folks, nothing else matters to a citizen of his kingdom, other than the interests of the king and the coming of his kingdom. And Jesus talks an awful lot about being ready for the coming of his kingdom. Do you remember some of those parables? There's an awful lot of them. Then we know this that the kingdom of God is already present. So, what do you mean by that? Well, it says this in Luke 17 20 and 21. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me put it to you this way. Before I became a, a, a Christian, who was the king of my life? I was, self was. When God called me to himself and showed me who I was, and the Spirit did his work within me, I surrendered to the reign and rule of Jesus Christ in my life, and my life was different. I began to live a different life. So the kingdom of God came and lives within me and is evidenced by how I live my life, thus the reign or the rule of Jesus Christ. So it's the kingdom of God has come already, it's in the hearts of men. And it's very simple. If we were to go, for example, to certain parts of any city, let's just say Seattle, since we're in, in Washington state, and you had you and your lifestyle, and I compared it to an average person in any city, in this case, Seattle, it'd be totally different lifestyles. Amen. Well, how is that possible? Different kingdoms. Different kingdoms. Now, has the kingdom of God come in its fullest? Obviously, no. Therefore, the kingdom is also future. So it's already come, but not yet in its fullness. This is why we pray, thy kingdom come, exactly. It's why in the book of Revelation, at the blowing of the seventh trumpet, The voices of heaven cry out, the kingdom of the world, this would be a great, I'd love to be there, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now what I love about this phrase, you know, your kingdom come or thy kingdom come, is that there is a sense of urgency or an immediacy with regards to the coming of the kingdom. Literally, your kingdom come reads, thy reign come, or let thy kingdom come now. Okay? And we'll talk a little bit about how that is not lived out within our lives. But this is literally how it reads. There's a sense of immediacy, of urgency, that the kingdom would come. I like this because I'm an impatient person. I get a sense that God is impatient too. And it would make sense because he's not pleased that there's so many people in rebellion against his rule. This phrase is in the form of a command, by the way. Thy kingdom come. It's a command and it calls for effective action and even a sudden, instantaneous coming. And so as we begin to understand just a little bit kind of the basics of the kingdom of God, we begin to understand Matthew thirteen forty four and 46, that the kingdom is to be sought after with great effort because it is of great value. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see, when you start to study the kingdom, you understand the value of the kingdom. So that's kind of a brief definition of the kingdom. Let's talk about now prioritizing the kingdom in our prayers. To a Jewish person, if you read the Talmud, which is a Jewish commentary on God's word, it says this, that that prayer in which there is no mention of the kingdom of God is no prayer at all. <laughs> How often do you find yourself praying for the kingdom of God or for the second coming of our King? We get the idea here, right? just—it's not a priority in our prayers. It, it needs to be a priority. Now, there are seven petitions in this Lord's Prayer. Our Father is simply an address. We're addressing him. The first petition is what? Hallowed be thy name. That's the first thing we're asking. And what's the second thing we're asking? That your kingdom come. (laughs) Again, it's not about you. Get the focus off yourself. You'll be a, a lot happier. Now, so from a Jewish perspective, prayer was to be centered on the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, for Christians, prayer is to be centered on the coming of the kingdom. More specifically, the coming of who? For a second time. It's the coming of Jesus Christ. At his second coming, he fully establishes what? His kingdom, exactly. Now, since all of redemptive history is moving to the the glorification of the Son of God at his return... This becomes every believer's preoccupation. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. We're not going to spend much time here. You'll recognize this. I've talked about this twice. And again, it serves as a reminder for us that we are to be preoccupied with the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom in all its fullness again nothing else matters in relation to the second coming of jesus christ if you remember the words of our lord in luke 17 verses 20 through verse it was 18 through 8 he's talking about persisting persevering in prayer that this widow who's seeking justice from a, a pagan king, and she keeps coming to him, and coming to him, and coming to him, okay? And that context here is one of the coming of a, of a kingdom. Now, the Pharisees were asking Jesus when the kingdom of God was coming. And after answering them, and you can see it in Luke 17, 23, 18, 8, he shares with them a parable about a prayer found in Luke 18, 1 through 8. Let me remind you that typically Jesus does not give them meaning of the parable, so they're asking when's the kingdom gonna come and he, he gives them this, this, this answer that they're not gonna understand really but it's not gonna come in the way you think it's gonna come. Then he switches to praying and persisting in prayer but then we get the meaning of this parable and that's rare. The father granted that the son revealed this to his disciples. This is very important that they get this. Just like it was important that Daniel write down the interpretation of that dream he had in in chapter 7. It's very important. We need to know this. And typically, Jesus spoke and gave answers to the parables to his disciples. This time, it's to everybody. And the point of this parable is so important that Jesus was allowed to give his meaning even before the parable was told. And the point is clear. Don't give up praying intensely at all times. See Luke 18, verse 8? However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, when Jesus acts at the end of verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What does that mean? Well, he's been talking about persevering in prayer. You see that? In other words, will the Son of Man find that his disciples have kept praying? Praying for what? Well, what's the context? The parable is talking about justice and the coming of what? the kingdom of God. You see that? In other words, complete justice only comes at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Therein lies the danger of the social justice movement. You can spend all the time you want trying to measure out and guarantee equal outcomes for everybody. It will never happen. Until he comes again. True justice, complete justice only comes when he comes again. The idea of poverty of the poor will only be solved when he comes again. Until then, he made it very clear the poor you will always have with you. So we are to pray for his return, which is another way of praying. Thy kingdom come. It's the second thing you pray. Again, I remind you, it's the second thing that you pray. Because when he comes, by the way, he will be glorified. So a true child of God, and you want to consider yourself a true child of God, you will concern yourself not so much with your own plans as with the plans of God. So, praying right, I'm not letting God in on my own agenda. I'm rather calling for God to fill his own agenda through me. You see that? It's not about me, it's about him. So, how can we call ourselves Christians who have affirmed the lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives when we are not preoccupied with his causes? with his agenda, with his concerns. I've, I've taught us as elders of this church that we define spiritual leadership as moving people onto God's agenda. It's that simple. That's what real spiritual leadership is. I'm moving you onto God's agenda. Now that takes quite a transformation in the life of a believer to come to a place where instead of saying, my kingdom come, I say, your kingdom come. Because the simple fact of the matter is, is that we get distracted and we build into our own kingdoms and forget to build into the kingdom of God. Thus, he will say later on in Matthew chapter 6, seek first his kingdom. You know these verses, right? It's the kingdom, it's the kingdom, it's the kingdom. So let's talk about being distracted from the kingdom. In his very first sermon, Jesus laid out the priorities for the citizens of his kingdom. We've been going through that. And of course, regarding the kingdom, he said in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The context there meaning all the things that you need. Don't be anxious about what you eat or drink, what you will wear. God will provide for you. All you need to do is to do what? Seek his kingdom first, he'll add to you. Seek his kingdom first, he'll take care of you. Seek his kingdom first, he'll take care of you. Now you see this in a very real, everyday story and experience since March of last year when you saw the world hoard toilet paper those things right and do you remember me saying to you if you're doing it stop God will provide for you and of course he already has and he will continue to in fact John Wesley would say uh, he was very famous for saying this that if anything bring do your best to bring someone to Christ because then they're taking care for the rest of their life Because God has promised for his children to do what? Provide Provide for them. Again, you have a privilege and and, and a blessing that the world doesn't have, an anxiety-free life. Don't worry about those things, right? He knows what you need, he owns it all, and he will provide. And there is nobody in here that doesn't have a car, that doesn't have a house, that doesn't have food, doesn't have toilet paper, right? We have all of that. But we get distracted, and a story is told of a conversation that the devil had with some demons on how to populate the kingdom of Satan. And one demon said this, send me, I will tell them that there is no God. And you still see that today. Satan replied, they will never believe you. Most of them know that there is a God. God. Another demon said, send me, I will tell them that there is no heaven or hell. And Satan shook his head, that will never do. They know there is life after death. The third demon spoke, said, send me, I will tell them there is a God, a heaven, and a hell. But there's no hurry to decide. Ah, said Satan with satisfaction, that's the best plan. And he was sent out into the world to spread his lie. Now, that demon was surely at work today and was at work in the time of the Apostle Paul in the case of Felix, found in the book of Acts. Just listen to this story here. In Acts 24 and 25, you'll read this. But history tells us that Felix was a slave in the household of Antonia, the daughter of Mark, Anthony, and Octavia, and the mother of the Roman emperor Claudius. Felix and his brother Pallas were given their freedom and rose to positions of great influence during Claudius's reign. Pallas became the chief accountant to the public treasury and amassed enormous wealth. Through his connections in high places, Felix got appointed as governor of Judea, a position he held probably from A.D. 52 to 59. Now, in God's great mercy, he presents them, Felix that is, with an opportunity of a lifetime to listen to none other Then the apostle Paul preached the gospel to him and his wife personally. But Paul's preaching got a little little too close for comfort and Felix became frightened and told Paul in Acts 24 verse 25, go away for the present and when I find time, I will summon you. Well, how did summoning Paul often, he did summon Paul often after that but the opportunity had already passed. He was never saved because the excuse, they didn't have time for God. See, he didn't value the kingdom of God. Now, we all live busy lives, right? Many things crowd into our daily schedules, and the first thing that they push out, I mean, let's just be honest here is they push out God. They push out the kingdom. And one of the things that pushes out, and you're not gonna like this, but one thing that pushes out God and something you're holding right now are your cell phones. How many of you get up? And some of the first things you do. I'm guilty of this. I go to my Bible. No, I go to my cell phone. And the focus starts off the day throughout the day, it's like we become slaves to it. And I noticed that you go to look at a restaurant. If you go out to eat, look at a restaurant, and what do you see? Some people talking, majority are doing what? They're on their phones. We are on our phones. It's a great tool of distraction. It's a beautiful thing to be able to be contacted at any time, and it's an absolutely awful thing to be able to be contacted at any time. Amen. And we all know that we should make time for God, right? And for his kingdom. But we're simply prone to think as the phone goes off, how appropriate. (laughs) If you're a student, we think this way. As soon as the semester is over, I'll find time for God. I know that for a fact. It's the way it was when I was in college and in ministry. If you're a husband, as soon as I get through this business at work, I'll make time for God. If you're a wife, as soon as the kids get into school, I'll make time for God. And here we go. I am not going to be like this. I tell you this right now because I've seen too much of it. If you're a retiree, when I retire, then I'll make time for God. I hear you say all the time, because you're retired, I'm busier now than I was before. That makes me want to vomit. Okay? One thing you have is time now. You're not going to work for eight hours a day or whenever. So what happens? Life slips by. The things of God fade from view and we miss our opportunity just as Felix did and we fail to learn one of life's basic messages and life's basic rules that in life things never slow down. In fact, the only time things slow down in life is when you die. That's when things slow way down. That's why I say death is nature's way of saying, slow down. That's why when you sit there, and I had a friend of mine recently pass away back in Indiana, and I know his life that he lived, he was a very busy person, and, and whenever you see somebody, and you're, you know, if they actually pay for a funeral anymore because it's so expensive, and you go to a viewing and you walk by, what's the number one thing people say? He looks so peaceful, right? Or she looks so peaceful. But well, folks, Rigor morris will do that to you. <laughs> Most of the time, they're just really, really busy and frantic and worried and so on. That's that's unfortunately how our lives are, and they don't and should not be that way. You have a better offer on the table. And the story of Felix should serve as a reminder that the world will tell you with the time you have been given to build your own kingdom. And if you have any time left over, then you can build into the kingdom of God. But Jesus says don't get distracted from the kingdom. In fact, seek first the kingdom of God. Let's talk about praying the kingdom to come on earth. To get the full understanding of what it means to pray, your kingdom come, I want us to look again at at Matthew 6, verses 9 through 10, in its entirety, and see the logical flow of this prayer. It says, our Father in heaven, you know this, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One big sentence. Now, we know that God's will is done in heaven, right? Right? And God's kingdom, meaning his reign and rule, is established in heaven, right? God's name is howled in heaven, right? Those are times to say, yes. yes. Hallelujah, amen, all that, okay? That's all good. His will is not done perfectly on earth. There we go. His kingdom is not fully established on earth. And his name is not howled properly on earth. You got that? All right. So in order for his name to be held on earth, his will to be done on earth, what must happen? His kingdom must first be fully established. You see that? That's the only way it's going to work. It's the only way the, first, the address of the Father in heaven, the only way that the first petition, how be thy name, the second prayer, his kingdom come, it's all related. And This is what we are praying when we pray, your kingdom come. Theologians have long believed that the only part of all of God's creation, of all of the universes, everything that God's created, only one part is rebelling against his will. It's humanity on earth. And by praying, your kingdom come, we are in essence praying, Father, stop the rebellion so that you may reign here as you reign there. You may reign on earth as you reign in heaven. So in other words, when you pray your kingdom come, you are praying for Jesus to be your Lord. Now, his plan for his kingdom to come involves us. Well, how? Well, first, we bring the reign of Jesus Christ to earth when we surrender our wills to his rule and our hearts as Lord. And it's to be a radical surrender to God. We've been through this before. Let me share you another story from Alexander the Great as we wind up this sermon here that gives us insight into the unusual effectiveness and speed of the rule of Alexander the Great. Another story is told of Alexander the Great and a small company of soldiers approaching a strongly fortified walled city. Alexander raised his voice and demanded to see the king. And when the king arrived, this is an amazing story, Alexander ordered him to surrender the city and everyone inside. And the king laughed. He says, why should I surrender to you? You can't do us any harm. But Alexander offered to give the king a demonstration. He ordered his men to line up single file and start marching. And he marched them straight towards a cliff. The townspeople gathered without hesitation, on the wall, and they watched in shocked silence as one by one, the soldiers marched right off the cliff to their deaths. Some loyal employees, huh? The townspeople and the king immediately surrendered to Alexander the Great. They realized that if a few men were actually willing to die at the command of of this leader, then nothing would stop his eventual victory. Now, just think about that. Christ ruling and reigning in your life to that degree. Bringing his reign to this earth. So you have to ask yourself the question, are you fully surrendered to the complete rule of Christ in your life? That's the kingdom now reigning and ruling in the hearts of men and women. The second way the kingdom comes, and we pray this, is... His kingdom, his reign, and his rule comes through us. In other words, if Christ is going to reign the earth, he tells us it begins first and foremost with an invitation. In Matthew 22, we find the parable of the wedding feast. Remember that parable? When those who were invited would not come, i.e. the Jews, what were the king's instructions? Well, verse 9 tells us, Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. In other words, we are to invite others to end their rebellion against God, allowing Him to take up His reigning residence in their lives. It means that simple. This is the reason why we talk to people about Jesus Christ. It's not so much for their sake, but for His name'sake, His glory. It's just flat out wrong, folks, that someone should not allow Him to reign because He's worthy. It's just not right. That's why Paul said the reason why he was called to be an apostle was, in Romans 1.5, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Again, what is to be hauled in all the earth? His name. Hallowed be thy name. You can walk outside the parking lot, and his name isn't hallowed. That should not be. Amen. So as we continue to move through the, the phrases that make up the Lord's Prayer, again, I hope you see that this prayer is it's building one part upon another. So when you and I come to know God as our Father, it's a wonderful experience, when we find out just how wonderful he is. And this creates a desire within us to see him glorified. Thus we pray, hallowed be thy name. But it also should create within us a hunger to see others come to know him. Thus we pray, thy kingdom come. So to pray, as Alan Carr states, hallowed be thy name, expresses a desire to see God glorified. This is why we pray. But we must also know that he will never receive all the glory, do his name, until what? His kingdom becomes a reality both in us, as individuals, and in the world as a whole. Thus we pray, your kingdom come. So the reason to become a Christian is so that you can glorify and exalt his name, hallowed be your name, and his kingdom, your kingdom come, so his will is done on earth as in heaven. Amen? Again, so to pray, thy kingdom come is in essence what you're doing, folks, is you're praying in evangelistic prayer, inviting people into his kingdom. So when you pray, hallowed be thy name, as I reminded you, it starts before you pray. How do you hallow his name? By living a holy life. You also hallow his name in how you pray, in the words you choose, because it's all who he is. That's what his name is, the totality of all of a person's attributes. When I pray your kingdom come, The idea behind that is, yes, I'm praying that his kingdom come. I need to be a part of that kingdom coming process. I need to be making disciples. I need to be inviting others to place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Exactly. So here's what I want you to do this week. It's pretty simple. I want you to pray this prayer every day this week. Since you get the sermons, you can do this. It's very simple. Lord Jesus, may your kingdom come in my life today. Now what does that mean? What area of your life have you taken back control of? Resurrender. May your kingdom come within me. May your values dominate my thinking and my decision making. So when you leave this service, and you get in your cars, and that transformation takes place, and you start driving, and you get behind a slow driver, a different animal comes out, right? You're praying, may your kingdom come right now and change me, May you dominate my thinking and my decision making because I really don't like this slow driver in front of me. Just get them out of my way, Lord, and everything will be fine and your kingdom can come again. I mean, you know where I'm going with this, all right? Let's make it practical here. May your cause in the world be advanced by the things I say and do. Oh my gosh, Lord, do you actually want me to share my faith? Are you looking for opportunities to share your faith? Are you available to be used by God on a moment-by-moment basis? Finally, help me to do your will all through this day. And when you don't do his will throughout your day, you know you've gotten distracted, and so you need to refocus. Repent and recommit. Amen? Amen? your kingdom come three simple words we about 40 minutes to get through that all right well let's stand let's close the song and let's worship him one more time and let's go in the power of the holy spirit that his kingdom may come through us this day and this week and for the rest of our lives and pray for his second coming amen because <laughs> i'd like to get out of here folks you're not praying hard enough because i'm still here I want him to come again so this is all over. I'm getting tired of this, all right? So pray more, all right? Amen. (laughs)